So I Married an Alcoholic is sponsored by RealtorAndABaby.com. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease real estate? Even if you're not in greater Philadelphia, reach out with your contact information so you can be connected with the most qualified realtor in your area. RealtorAndABaby at gmail.com. Welcome, ladies, gentlemen, derelicts, addicts, shorts, fats, queens, royals, peasants. Ooh, the queen has made it back. Well, we made it back. The queen just stayed home. Yeah, the queen actually never left. That's right. We could not guarantee her safe passage south of the Mason-Dixon line. And we're glad she's doing well. She's completed her COVID isolation. She certainly has. Cats, dogs, straights, queers, LGBs, pluses, minuses, everybody. We welcome all. We sure do. All-inclusive. I am Chris, and I am an alcoholic. And I'm Megan, and I'm an alcoholic. And with great pleasure and talent on loan from God, I bring you Season 2, Episode 10 of the world-famous So I Married an Alcoholic podcast. How are you, my love? I'm good. It's good to be here with you. It is, it is. It's a little later than I like, but, you know, we're going to work through it. Yeah, one way or another. It's good to be back in the confines of my safe space. I do like being in the studio. I do as well. It's a little bit different of a feel. <laughs> when we take the show on the road, we have some interesting accommodations. Uh, that's uh, to say the least. Apparently not everyone has a studio in their basement. Or in their garage. How dare they? I know. They're missing out. We need to go to safe spaces only when we travel from now on. All right. We'll look into it. I feel like that would be even more expensive yeah, than what our budget would allow. I would say. Which doesn't allow for much because you have a new tampon now. I love my new car. It was good on the road trip. Car's stupid. All right, you're stupid. We actually, Megan was looking at the Instagram while I was doing 150 down I-95. <laughs> we get a message from one of our dedicated listeners with a screenshot of the back of the car. And they were like, where are you two going? It was like somewhere in Virginia, I think. I think you are correct. I mean, we were all headed to North Carolina, not together. How random is that? It was strange. It was. It was funny, though. I was like, did we cut you off? Sorry. My bad. Chris is driving. Actually, no, I think it's when I was driving. You were driving. I actually, so we had, and I say we because I literally mean we, the entire family had a appointment we had a quick little real estate adventure before we hit the road we did because that's what it takes in 2022 if you are going on vacation it does not matter much like megan's life in college you must service the client whenever the client needs servicing mm -hmm. so chris got us through dc then we stopped at a rest stop and i drove for a little bit while he wrote an offer and as soon as he was done he made me pull over on the shoulder and get out yeah, because I'd had enough at that point. Although my detouring did help because the other thing that listener said was, how about that construction on 95? I wouldn't know. We ran around it through all the neighborhoods in southern, western, middle, I don't know, somewhere in Virginia. It's very unlike the last time that Megan followed her GPS religiously, and we ended up in like somebody's driveway in Connecticut. This time it saved the day. It did. It did. I will give you that credit, my love. So anyway, we had a great trip. We sure did. It was great to see the family, as always. You know, I'm uh, a big proponent of getting down there to see Dick and Jude as often as possible. Although I think Jude drove me a little more nuts on this particular trip than I would have liked. She's wound very tight. Kind of like, I don't know if you can hear it, but the bird dog is upstairs. 
<laughs> apparently is also wound very tight. I don't know what the bird dog's doing, but it sounds messy when we get back upstairs. All I know is I'm down here and she's up there and that's good enough for now. Yeah, hopefully Pooh's holding down the fort. So Frankie was a hit down in North Carolina. As always. She's a beautiful little child I've created. She was charming them all. You know, honestly, it was great to have Papa Dick on the podcast as well. It was awesome. And you got a lot of quality time with them. Chris and Papa Dick went to two hockey games, just the two of them. Yes. And again, if you know anything about me, you know I am the least sports-oriented person on this entire planet. However, there was a luxury box involved. And you actually had a really good time. Yeah, I I couldn't tell you a goddamn thing about hockey or football or curling or, I mean, I know golf. I know. But, uh... And some may say that doesn't count. A lot would say that doesn't count, and I would tend to agree with that. Yep. But hey, we still had fun. It was a great time. That's awesome. Shall we thank the sponsors? Yes, please. Marlane Graphics. MarlaneGraphics.com for all of your printing needs. And Realtor and a Baby. Realtorandababy.com for all of your real estate needs. Shall we PSA, my love? Oh boy, here we go. Tonight's PSA is brought to you by Auntie Gay P's House of Fetishes. Auntie Gay P's House of Fetishes for all of your double penetration needs. What's now, the PSA? Can I get to it? Oh, I'm sorry. Go right ahead. Do you mind? No. Clearly. Okay, go. So because... We're coming off the heels of our lovely trip to North Carolina, and also because it is getting a little bit warmer and the days are getting longer. Tonight's PSA is from the American Cancer Society. The American Cancer Society suggests a minimum of SPF 30 while exposed to the sun. That's really good advice, honey. Thank you, darling. Okay. That concludes tonight's PSA. Perfect. Brought to you by Auntie Gay P's House of Fetishes. For all of your double penetration needs. Oh my god. Is anyone getting tired of Chris's introductions? Nope. Please send feedback. Yeah, send your feedback anyways. Yeah. I don't care if you hate on me or not. So I married an alcoholic at gmail.com or any of our social media sites at So I Married an Alcoholic. It was very good, honey. I know, I tried. You're becoming a professional broadcaster. I know, I normally let you handle the business end of it. As you should. I'm just here for the pleasure. Shocking. (laughs) Just how you ended up with two baby daddies. (laughs) Now, what would you like to talk about? Well, um, so we had an awesome episode with Papa Dick. Mm -hmm. And I thought coming off the heels of that, I said to Chris, would you actually want to tell your story? To which I said, I am always interested in telling my story. (laughs) When it's all about you. That's right. This will be a little bit different, I guess. Um, I mean, I guess we'll kind of do it AA meeting style um, in the sense that Chris will just kind of get up. Not get up. You can stay seated. Tell your story. I'd prefer that. But I'll probably ask some clarifying questions throughout. Ooh, I like that. Yes. And also, interestingly enough, this may be... So Chris and I have both chaired a bunch of meetings, spoken at a bunch of meetings, spoken at a bunch of rehabs, like all that kind of stuff through AA. Um, But this is the first time I'll actually hear you, I guess, tell your story. Now, I know your story in bits and pieces. I know the highlights. um, But I've never listened to you speak. I've never gone to a meeting where you've spoken. I don't think you've ever come where I have either. No. Again, like you've heard me and I've heard you chair meetings, which is where you like, I don't know, proctor the meeting. Is is that appropriate? Yeah. 
I, I think it's a little bit different in a sense that when you're chairing, you typically only do just a couple minute spiel. Yeah. And it's not even necessarily your story. It may just be on whatever the topic is that night. Yeah, exactly. So I guess this will be a, a little bit more of an in-depth dive. Yeah into my story although we're gonna still have to keep it kind of brief because we don't necessarily have all the time in the world we don't and normally when you're speaking at a meeting you're telling your story you have about 20 minutes so this will be similar give or take maybe a little bit more yeah probably more considering the q a involved and also too when you when we speak at least at a meeting i know chris and i both try to and again i've actually never heard him speak but i'm assuming um just based on how we talk that it's all about sharing your experience, strength, and hope. Um, and both of us, at least I know when I tell my story, I keep the experience portion very limited um, and talk more about my recovery than what got me there. Uh, but I think this round we may delve a little deeper into the experience portion. As in like the part where I robbed the bank? Yeah, I think that's what the people want to hear. Okay. Oh, do you, do you want to start there and work backwards? No, you start wherever you want. It's your story. I robbed a bank. Okay, why don't you start at the beginning? I grew up, as as we all know, in the, the great city of Worcester, Worcester, mm-hmm. Massachusetts. I am one of four boys. Uh, my dad had my brother, Rick, who we also have had on the show. Yes. And then uh, almost 10 years apart from Rick and I are my two younger brothers, Ross and Joe. So when I was growing up, my dad, as again, previously discussed on the last episode, was a, I don't really want to say tech pioneer, but, you know, he had a business that he ran, probably a couple hundred employees at his height. And needless to say, I never went without a goddamn thing in my life. I was very accustomed to a house down the beach, down Cape Cod. We had a cabin up in New Hampshire. I went to private school pretty much my entire life. Got my license in a 1967 Stingray Corvette. I had it made. It was literally the childhood that children dream of. Everything, the finest of vacations, the best opportunities, the most family time, etc., etc., Right around the time that I was, I want to say it was maybe 16, maybe 17, that business due to the dot-com boom had failed to adopt to the new software media, I guess, would be a good way of saying that. And within a matter of, I don't know, 12, 18 months, something like that, the business went belly up. Now, things were still good at home in the sense that You know, everybody was alive. I still had my parents. We were still living in the same house. Everything had changed or nothing had really changed except for I was no longer the rich kid. I was no longer the cool kid. But that, I mean, that left a big hole in my soul, if you will. Okay, so ready? I'm going to start my interjecting. (sighs) I know. I'm going to get to the meat and potatoes of it. I'm not going to let you tell the Disney princess version. No, we're not getting, we haven't gotten to the, the meat and potatoes yet. No, I know, but so this is a, this is a interesting question. So who did you think of yourself before all that? Like, is that what your identity relied on? Like, were you even back then, like deep down insecure, but you had all these fancy things to kind of cover that up? I think without question. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. I would say that that was a big part of my identity. The popularity uh, because of who my dad was and because of the connections that he had. I was interning at a uh, rock station in Boston. So I was a 15-year-old kid who was working at a rock station, which means that I had access to, you know, bands, the on-air personalities, tickets to shows, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, to answer your question, yeah, that was a huge part of my identity. And then that went away. And coincidentally, within maybe another year, year and a half of that, uh, Rick had gone to, uh, he was attending college up in Vermont. And that was also a big part of my identity as well. Like Rick and I played football together. We, I don't think we tag team girls together, but I'm sure, you know, we were in the same room. It may have come close. It, I'm sure like danger close. By accident. Maybe, maybe not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that also, I think that one-two punch just left me, I don't want to say nowhere to turn to, but drugs and alcohol, because obviously there were more healthy outlets or there were healthier outlets than drugs and alcohol. And I had mentioned it, I think, just a couple of episodes ago. I had gotten into a fight. I want to say it was with my girlfriend. I don't really know. It may have been with Papa Dick. At that time, we were running a bar slash restaurant, and obviously there was access to alcohol. And I drank. Again, I want to say it was like a, a twisted tea or a Mike's Hard Lemonade or something like that. And probably halfway or so through that that drink, I was like, oh, my God, this is my solution. And that, that particular four ounces of alcohol, whatever it was, I think set the course of my about next two decades of my life. And how old were you? Was that around that 16, 17, 18-year-old range? I want to say, again, things are fuzzy. I'm 41. It was well over 20 years ago. But yeah, I want to say, I know I had my license, so it was probably 17 or 18 years old. I know, like I can tell you from just straight up honesty, the first time that I like drank or smoked weed or anything like that was maybe somewhere through my senior year of high school. So again, 17, 18 years old. And I was going to say up until that point, you've told me this before, like, you know, you were the popular kid, this and that, but you weren't into drinking or drugs. You were actually like a little bit of a health nut, you said. Like you were careful about what you put in your body and things like that. I was. I was very much one of those, like my body is a temple tool tool bag. I played three sports in high school, so I was always like no smoking, no drinking. Now we did go to the parties. I mm-hmm. was not antisocial in that aspect. I just didn't partake. Yeah. It was easier to to scoop up the girls when you were sober and they were like throw up drunk. You were the only one sober. You're like, oh, honey, I'll give you a ride home. Shooting fish in a barrel. (laughs) Now, let me ask you this, too. So Mm -hmm. Rick is about a year and a half older than you, right? Uh, 18 months, exactly. So did you ever feel, I know you looked up to him a lot. Um, He was an athlete also and probably a better one than you were without question um was there not jealousy but like insecurity derived from that at all did you ever feel like you were like living in his footsteps or needed to I don't know keep up I'm almost positive that a a certain 
amount of my insecurity stemmed from, you know, Rick being like the high school quarterback and all the girls' sweethearts. And yeah, he was so handsome. And yeah. Absolutely. And you were round two. That's right. Yeah. I was round two. Now, in my defense, uh, like I had, you know, I had different things going for me outside of that. So while, yes, I'm sure that it fucked with me on some sort of, I don't want to say massive level. Uh, yes, I, I'm sure it fed into my insecurity. Um, I just don't think that it was all of my insecurity. No, no. Does I'm that just, make sense? Absolutely. No, completely. I was just, you know, I'm trying to pull out the little pieces. Oh, okay. Okay. Go ahead. What happens next? So I think the next, I don't know, five or so years were lost in, you know, attending college and not attending college and dead-end jobs and things like that because, again, I was told that, like, college is the key to success. But at the same time, I was really just into partying. So a lot of the college classes that I should have been attending, I was not attending because I was either too hungover or just straight up sitting in a car getting high somewhere. And you originally had the plan to go away to college, like a traditional four-year live-away in the dorm situation. Yes, I did. I actually, I had full rides to a couple of different schools up in like the Massachusetts area, uh, one of which was also in Rhode Island. And I don't know, I want to say two weeks before I was supposed to move in, I was like, yeah, college isn't my thing. And just backed out. Sure did. <laughs> that always like amazes me when you tell that part. Why? I don't know. I mean, I guess because I could picture it. And I know not that you regret it because I don't think you do. I don't think you regret the, I mean, the path your life took was a little bit difficult. But I know we all agree we got where we got because of how we got here. I don't know. I wonder, I think that too, at least the way I look at it, was just those insecurities too. Like, I don't know if I can do it. I'm not going to say that I, I regret not going to college. I, I've said this before. The only thing that I regret out of those years about not going to college was not getting that typical live at college experience. Yeah. You would have loved it. I totally deprived myself of that. I mean, they would have kicked you out after a semester, but you would have loved yeah. it while you were there. If I was lucky enough to get the chance to, kick, <laughs> to get kicked out, I could have very easily been dead. So it was a it was a quick progression because we're talking somewhere in the middle of senior year, you take your first drink. And then by the time August rolls around, you're rolling, you're about to move away to college. You've actually decided you'd rather stay home and party. Yep, absolutely. So, I mean, that's a quick little, that's like a six, eight month little jaunt there that, that things kind of started imploding semi. Absolutely. And this also coincides with the first time that I was graced with the delicious Percocet uh, again. It was another way of masking feelings of inadequacy and lack of direction and every other negative and frankly positive thing that was going on in my life. Uh, when I took that Percocet, I was healed of all of my fears, doubts, and insecurities. For about the six hours that they last. Well, if you snort them, they only last for a couple hours, but then you have to re-snort and <laughs> re-snort and re-snort, which is why I have this gargantuan schnoz. You don't have a big nose. There's another insecurity for you. <laughs> and that, I mean, that, you know, basically set the course for, again, the next 20 years of my life. You could sum up from the ages of 
18, 19 till about 35, 36, you know, with a, a pill bottle. I mean, that was my life. My life was ruled, controlled, dictated by getting a substance, maintaining that high, doing what I needed to do to get those drugs, regardless of consequences. And I have stolen from my family. I have stolen from myself. I have made incredibly poor, or I had made incredibly poor life decisions to literally get a little round pill. Because I will be the first to tell you that I don't give a fuck what is going on or what the consequences are or what adverse effects it's going to have on my life. I'm not thinking about what my life looks like in five years from now because of the crime that I am about to commit to not be sick. And I cannot tell you how desperate a feeling that is. Like, I, I honestly, I cannot put that into words or I cannot describe that accurately enough to, to like, really portray to people how powerful and insidious this disease is like there was no consequences that were going to stop me from doing what I needed to do to get and stay high and that's a horrible feeling yeah and as far as I, like I don't know what that feels like either I mean I do from the alcoholic sense but I've never been an opiate withdrawal before because mm -hmm. I've never inappropriately used opiates right because you're a pussy right but it's funny when you talk about that. I worked at a drug and alcohol rehab. I see how physically awful withdrawal is. And that's serious, right? And I think that's enough to, to want to make people want to continue to use. Um, interestingly enough, though, when we were talking to your dad on the last episode, he talked about how when he saw it, that he thought alcohol was even worse of an issue for you. So I guess where I'm going with this is, mm. I wouldn't say it's a cop-out. I'm not saying dope sick isn't real. It's incredibly real. But I also think it's important to say there's so much more behind that. That is what made you want to stay high in addition. Does that make sense? It does. But it wasn't on my mind. It may not have been on your mind, but you had blip blurbs of sobriety where that dope sickness was gone mm -hmm. and you always went back to it mm -hmm. that wasn't because you were afraid of being sick that part was done that part's over once you're withdrawn you're withdrawn no I was once you get sober again once the the drugs have left your system you're left with nothing but you and I think what made the difference this last time was that I committed to working a program and working on me. Like all those, you know, again, the last time I went to rehab was my seventh or eighth, eighth attempt at rehab. I'd never done a damn thing to try to fix me, which was ultimately the problem. It wasn't the drugs or the alcohol. Those were the solution. I was the problem. But I was not yet I didn't have the courage to face my own shit. Does that make sense? A hundred percent. Yeah, that's exactly what I was saying. So, you know, you talk about, oh, I would have done anything to stay high because I didn't want to be sick. That's true. But then after you got sober, two months later when you picked back up, you know, you picked back up not because you were afraid of getting sick. 
like it's all that other stuff. No, because I was tired of dealing with me. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's like the most important part of the story to tell people. Well, thank you for clarifying. No problem. I'm just putting it out there. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just trying to give the people what they want to hear. I don't know if that's what they want to hear, but okay. There's a lot of nosy fuckers out there. You know what I'm saying? Nah, I'm an open book. I know. I don't care. All right. So what comes next? So you want to give us some like highlights maybe of the 15 years of drug abuse? That is, you know, horrific as it was to live through. There were, I mean, obviously the, the robbing of the bank was, I think, a juicy highlight that you are absolutely dying to get into. And I'm more than happy to to tell that as a part of my story. But to be honest with you, those two decades were filled with, you know, in and out of rehab, same old, same old inability to live in my own body, drug and alcohol free, because I was too much of a pussy to work on me. And I will say it's funny, like I've said before, I've never sat and listened to Chris's whole story. I don't know all the dirty details. I know bits and pieces, but none of it actually matters to me. To me, Chris is the person I met sober. Mm. And I know that there was a long road to get there, but I don't hold any of those past things against him. Mm. I don't. I never do. Mm. What do you think I hold against you? Go ahead. All of it. I never even bring it up. I actually don't care about anything that happened before me. No, you're actually very good about that. Yeah, I don't care. There have been thousands of women before you that did not feel the same way. Yeah. No, see, I don't care about that. I only, I like the the clock started the day we started dating. All that shit, yes, I hold against you on a daily basis. (laughs) (laughs) Which is fair. (laughs) But prior to like July, whatever, 2018, that was all freebies for you. That's good. Yeah, I think so. I, I need, think that's very big of me. I needed the freebies, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. <laughs> you get out of jail free cards. have all been used up. So anyways, the, the robbing of the bank comes in. I can't even tell you what year it is. Not because of statute of limitations. I've, I've already been adjudicated in that particular basket of felonies. Uh, so at the time I was working for... Uh, one of the United States' largest consumer banks. They will certainly go unnamed. And I had access to the debit cards. So, like, you know how when you, you know, lose your debit card, you go into the bank and there's some shithead like me sitting behind a desk who's very polished and professional but snorting pills in the bathroom. So, anyways, I was sick, obviously dope sick, absolutely no money. And because I am, you know slightly genius I had hooked up a couple of debit cards to a general ledger account which is like a miscellaneous account that I found that the bank like pays vendors to come in and change the lights and things like that and I hooked it up to the account and I would go and hit the ATM for whatever the maximum allowed was 500 bucks so I did this with several accounts and I stole a bunch of money I don't think the the amount matters. No. Uh, anything over $250 is a felony in the state of Massachusetts. <laughs> Let's just say it was a lot more than that. And a couple of months had passed. That's what I was going to ask. How long of a period did this go on for? I'd say probably over the course of about a month. Okay. See, the way I had this story in my head was like you went in one day 
and like came out with a suitcase or wrote yourself a check for a large sum of money. Yeah, no, unfortunately it's not as sexy as that. No. I, I didn't go in, you know, like with uh, big glasses covering my eyes and, and a beautiful top hat and, and pass, you know, the tellers a note or, you know, I didn't like hold a gun to anybody's head. I, I My crimes committed were very much of the white collar variety. In fact, when Chris first told me he robbed a bank after we had been dating for a little bit, I was like, um, Megan immediately dropped her pants. <laughs> I was like, so, um, okay, so are we talking like ski mask and gun or white collar criminal? No. He's like total white collar. And I was yeah. like, oh, that's fine then. That's fine then. Like, who am I say like, oh, well, that's fine as long as you stayed dressed nice. Yes, of course. <laughs> so <laughs> messed up. Very Megan of you. I think that speaks to my mental state at the time. Thank God for you. And anybody that knows me knows that I would only excel in one of those like federal prison camps. Yeah, you like, had to go where Martha Stewart went. Yeah, like tennis in the morning, we'll crochet in the afternoon. Yeah, you weren't going to be able to do a hard time. Yeah, no, I'm not breaking rocks in Leavenworth. That's so, not my style. So how did you get caught? So I got caught because, again, earlier I had alluded to my criminal genius. Here's the thing. When you're maintaining a lifestyle of getting high, you're sloppy and you make mistakes. I got contacted by the lovely Worcester Police Department. Ooh. They called me in for questioning and the guy has a folder about an inch and a half thick of all your transactions <laughs> and proceeds to show me pictures of myself at an ATM. Oh no. <laughs> oh my God. That's awful. You must have literally been shitting your pants. Not really. That's because of all the opiates. And, and I, yeah, I was backed up for weeks. <laughs> I can honestly say that. And I'm not saying that like to try to be cool or like be a tough guy or anything like that. I think I was relieved, if I'm going to be super honest with you. No, I get that, too. I was like, you know what? The gig is up. I'm going to do my time. I'm going to be sick as shit, and I'm just going to pay for my sins. Yeah. I was caught a couple of times during my drinking escapades. and By your husband, your parents? All the above. And it, it was, as awful as it was in that moment, there's a huge part of you that's relieved. Absolutely. You're like, I don't have to carry this charade on anymore. Yep. I mean, I still did then, but then, you know, eventually Naturally. I didn't. Eventually I didn't have yeah, to. Eventually, like, you have no more. Finally, I got to the rehab, and then it was all, jig was up. And, and unfortunately, again, I had been to rehab many a times before, but the jig was not up until I was facing quite literally a decade or so in prison. Because I, I was fucked. Not only did they have pictures of me, you know, inside the bank, you know, setting up the debit cards and, you know, they were tracking, I don't know, the keystrokes on my computer. I don't know. I'm, I'm really not that smart. They also had me at ATMs. Oh, my God. They had the whole process documented. They, they had me at a restaurant paying for my sushi. Oh, my God. Oh, you're an <laughs> with, asshole. With, with said largest consumer bank in America's debit card. Oh my god! So, anyways, uh, and like we had talked about on the pop on the episode with Papa Dick, I'd asked Rick because Rick was a federal agent at the time, and he gave me the old cop speech, and he's like, "Well, if you're honest, they'll be honest, and they'll be good with you." Now, so did you tell him before you went in for the questioning? I did. Yes. Ooh. 
because the I mean the cop left me a voicemail. <laughs> Obviously, I wasn't answering the 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 caller ID from Worcester Police Department. I was like like everything else in my life. I'm gonna ignore that. <laughs> It'll definitely go away. Absolutely. So I called Rick, shitting my pants. I was like, "What do I do?" And that's when he was like, "Be honest." So I went in, and I mean, it's not like I could have lawyered up immediately. Yeah. I, I mean. The case was pretty obvious. It was fucking me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're I'm not like super common looking. So then Papa Dick got involved and he's like, you need to get a lawyer. You're a fucking idiot. And I was like, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, for so many reasons right now. For so many reasons. Yeah. So fast forward to my day in court. Uh, Alice came with me. And this is why the whole like sushi, you know, me at the restaurant paying for my sushi is like, I mean, it's funny now. It wasn't funny back then. Not funny. So any of you know that when you are in a court of law and you are facing your judge, they read off all of the shit you've done. And let me tell you something. I am not proud of this. Again, it is funny to talk about now because of where I am in my life. It was a laundry list of shit. Yeah. Like that prosecutor literally went on for about 20 minutes. You had to take a coffee break in the middle? Almost. There was a courtroom packed full of people. Really? Why? Because Worcester is full of derelicts. Okay. And there's a lot of people that get in trouble there. Oh, so it was people waiting for their turn. Correct. Okay. I thought you had like an audience in the media and stuff. I mean, I'd like to think I did, but none of them were there for me except the guy I was paying to be there and my mother who was terrified of her monster little son. Uh Actually, interestingly enough, the lawyer that I hired is also in the program. Oh, cool. And probably has maybe somewhere around like 10 years of sobriety now. We should have him on. Yes, we should. He'd, he'd be a great catch. So anyways, my case got called adjudicated what's called continued without a finding, which means they put you on probation for a year. I obviously had to pay back every dime that I took. And I think an important part of this story is that also on that my day of reckoning, I showed up with 85, 90% of what I stole. And I think that that had a huge part to do with the fact that I was pretty much allowed to walk. Well, I did walk out of the courtroom that day. Yeah. So my case was adjudicated what's called continued without a finding, which is you get a year of probation. And as long as you don't do anything stupid within that year, no harm, no foul. So I had less than a dozen, but more than a half dozen felonies that I was facing. And I was super honest with the judge and obviously said that I was a drug addict. And they asked me how long I'd been clean. At that point, it was probably 36 hours, but I said a couple of months and they let me go. And the justice system worked in my favor that day. And then we left the courtroom. I was going to say. And there were people smoking the delicious Newports because we all know if you smoke Newports, you're either a junkie or a degenerate. (laughs) I qualify as both. I check both of those boxes. (laughs) So anyways, we walk out of the courtroom, out of the courthouse, onto the street level. Those of you that have been at the courthouse in Worcester, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's literally a crowd of people outside smoking. My mother is holding my arm. I walk outside and I hear, People were literally cheering 
Are you serious? Because this fucking idiot walked out of that courtroom scot-free. Oh my God. And I shit you not, you can ask Alice. Alice was so fucking embarrassed, but like- She must have wanted to die. You would have thought I was Al Capone walking out of the courtroom. Oh my God. And then after I gave all of my fellow derelicts high fives and thanked them (laughs) for their time, Alice dug her claws into me. Oh, I'm sure. You bought fucking sushi? (laughs) 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 And I was like, not only embarrassed, but I was just like, I don't know. I didn't really want to get into it. And I was just like, listen, what's done is done and we're going to move on. That didn't go over well. No, I don't think so. She was so fucking pissed. I should deservedly so. And then, like we've talked about before, that was not my last go around. No, you did your year of probation. I did my year of probation. I did not, you know, fuck up in that year, although I was certainly still getting high and drinking. You know, I obviously had to face random drug and alcohol tests and I had a super cool probation officer that would call me on Monday and say, hey, you need to come in at some point this week by Friday and piss in a cup for me. And obviously being an opiate user, it takes a couple of days to get the opiates out of your system. And once again, I was given a massive break by somebody who owed me nothing. Yeah, I was going to say not deserved. No No, offense. It was not deserved. No. It was not deserved at all. And somehow I made it through that and, you know, again, continued to use, continued to fuck up, continued to ruin my life. And that's when I found myself at Alice's house detoxing in the bed. And we've heard that story. We don't need to necessarily revisit that. That still, again, was not enough to get me sober. And then finally, in 2018, I was living with Rick. 17. Was it 17? Yes. 2017. So then finally in 2017, I was living with Rick and his 27th soon-to-be ex-wife, and they caught me, or she caught me, snorting heroin in the basement. They kicked me the fuck out. I lived in my car for about a week and a half, maybe two weeks, and finally submitted that I was powerless over drugs and alcohol, and that I could not continue this life, and I went to rehab for the last time. And that's when things changed. So a couple things. Number one, so that was the first time I heard the whole like bank robbing story. So that, you know. Warm your heart. It did. Actually, you want to know what I feel. Do we still get to have dirty sex? We can. You know what I feel good about with that story? And this is like totally going to be like, this is stupid. I, I assume that you stole from people. Not the bank. Like, I thought it was more of like an identity theft thing. Nah. I actually feel better that you didn't steal from people. You just stole from the institution. Yeah, fuck them. Yeah, I feel better about that. Nah, they got their money back anyways. Yeah, no, I know that. But I'm just saying, like, you can really fuck someone's credit. I'm really glad you didn't do that. No, I did not. I I only fucked my credit. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why Chris can't bank for 10 years, but we're almost there. We are so close. We are knocking on the door of having a savings account yet again. All right, so you walk into the door of the last rehab, Mm -hmm. and it all changed. It did all change. You know, a couple of things have happened. Yes, we've talked very early on in the podcast about how I, you know, hooked up with that girl. That had absolutely nothing to do with it. If I'm going to be super honest and really vulnerable right now, I remember sitting on my bed, and I was just, I was breaking down. I was just crying. I was all fucked up, because right before that... We had group session, and I can't remember the guy's name, and I wish I could, but 
I want to say it was like Pastor Zach or I don't know, something like that. Like complete weirdo came in and played music for like 45 minutes. So that was cool. But he also had uh, his, his little superpower, if you will. And he would go around the room. It was almost like this. I don't know if it's telepathic or if it's like ESP or something like that. But anyways, he would go around the room and he'd like pick somebody out and he'd be like, this is what God wants me to tell you. Hmm. And then he called on me one day and I was shitting my pants. <laughs> and I remember this so distinctively. He called on me and he was like, God wants you to stop being a wallflower. Interesting. God wants you to dance. And if you know anything about me, you know I'm not a dancer. But that was, I am a wallflower. I prefer the easier, softer way. Yeah. I don't want to be the center of attention. I want to be on the sidelines doing my thing. Which is funny. I don't think people would think that that listen to this. No, I don't think they would. Huh. And it's funny if you think about it, right? Because fast forward all these years, now we're doing a podcast talking about our deepest, most private, sincere feelings that frankly nobody has any business knowing, but it helps a lot of people, so I'm okay with it. So if I think about what that guy said to me, you know, four and a half years ago, God doesn't want you to be a wallflower. He wants you to start dancing. Like, think about that. Do you know how I think about that? Because Talk I, about fucking divine intervention. Yeah, I'll tell you how I, I, I love that saying, and it would have spoke to me too. And I think... In but a it's s- not like he went around the room and said that to everybody. No, I know that. I know that. Like, was- as a matter of fact, he pointed out that girl that I hooked up with, and he was like, God wants you to stop being a whore. Yeah, or like, don't take this one home with you. It's a bad plan. <laughs> but there's a girl like a year from now that's really excited you're going to. <laughs> Doubt it, Because she'll get to be happy. Anyway, um, I look at it too as like, he wants you to stop walking or watching and he wants you to dance. I have felt this way. I feel this way every day and it makes me like joyful. It's my favorite part about being sober and not even just not drinking, but living like a sober life. And the way I've changed my life is I was a wallflower too. And that doesn't even mean in an antisocial way. Mm -hmm. It means I was actually sitting there watching my life happen. Like Mm -hmm. I wasn't even an active participant. I agree with that. Like I was totally fucking it up and all these kinds of things, but I was so emotionally unconnected to myself Mm -hmm. to everyone around me I say that all the time when I got to rehab and they would come in and do these meetings at night and the speaker would always say and then you know I went to rehab and I was so upset or I was so depressed or I was so angry I was so jealous of all those people because I was so nothing yeah like I was a complete empty shell of a person yeah the inability to feel anything yeah it's sick isn't it and so now I can feel things in my life and I've talked about this too because when you first get sober it's in like dramatic peaks and valleys yeah and now you know uh, several years out or whatever it's like an appropriate amount most times I mean yeah it's a work in progress yeah always sometimes it's a little more exaggerated than would be if say I was a normie yeah okay that's fair I love that. So is that, do you think that sparked the change or that just sparked something inside of you that was like, maybe I can be different? I think what it did for me, and again, by no choice of my own, was it allowed me to admit defeat. Oh. 
like I was just I was so done but I didn't even know how done I was and the only chance that I had at creating some sort of life for myself was to go to a sober house and basically start with nothing yeah when I moved to that sober house in Levittown Pennsylvania I had maybe a couple hundred dollars to my name and a backpack full of clothing I had literally nothing yeah like I was starting over from scratch and to be super honest with you it's probably the best thing that ever could have happened to me yeah because I had no choice but to connect with the people that I was living with connect with the program of AA connect with a higher power and do some work to change my life Dick talked about it on the podcast last week. He kind of just glanced over it. But like I didn't talk to a lot of my family, right, wrong, or indifferent, for at least a year Mm -hmm. into living in that sober house situation because, you know, I wasn't necessarily ready to make amends yet. And I still wasn't necessarily comfortable with like building this new sober life. So in a way, like I you know, curled up into my own individual darkness so that I could work on me, you know? Yeah. Gay. No, it's deep. I like it. Very deep. Very deep. Yeah. And that again, you know, by no choice of my own, it's because I I didn't have any other options or you can call it divine intervention or following some poontang or whatever you want to call it. But that's how I ended up in Pennsylvania. That's how I ended up working a program and meeting Megan and enjoying this amazing ride of a life that we're on together. And did you ever think this was possible? Not in a million years. No, right? I never thought that I could be this happy and this broke and this (laughs) in love without the assistance of a mind or mood altering substance. I used to sit in meetings in the beginning and, um, one of the big things they say is, you know, if you want what we have, and I would look around at all the people and I'm like, well, you have is bullshit. Cause like, that's not possible. Yeah. I'd be like, that dude was snorting OCs in the parking lot before he came in here. Cause that's a bullshit story. Way to lie to yourself and everyone else. No one's that happy. Like that's not a real thing that can happen, but it actually is. It is. And I, I think the important part of that story is like, you know, and at some point I'll tell mine or whatever, but the point of desperation that we were both at, how broken we were and to be where we are now, like if we can do it, literally anyone can because we were some fucked up people. Absolutely. And and there's nothing particularly different about Megan and I that make us successful in this life. Yes, we bring our own qualities and characteristics to the team that make it successful. But the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is, simply put, an easy program for complicated people. Yeah. And if you even follow it half-assedly, acidly, you can have an amazing life. And I think that we are, quite literally, the, the walking proof of that every day. Definitely. And I think, too, it's about, and this sounds like a terrible way to say it, but I think it's about like submission at some point. I don't know. That's sure is. A, it's funny when you see people first come in and they want to question everything and this and that and blah, blah, blah. To me, that just means, you know, they're not there yet and they'll get there because at some point you will be so desperate that you literally will look at someone and say, okay, tell me what to do next. And that's really it. Like I knew that I was powerless over drugs and alcohol for many many years I was not willing 
to sit down, shut the fuck up, and try something differently. Yeah, you knew better. And that willingness, because I was so defeated, that willingness was the gateway for me to open up, you know, my eyes and ears to this program. And it really is an amazing life we live. It sure is. It's crazy shit, isn't it? It's, I, I wouldn't, again, and this is why I always ask our guests, like, if you could have done things differently to get where you are today, would you? Nine out of ten, do not recommend. Like, they would not change a goddamn thing. No, because I don't think that we would have gotten to this higher quality of living um, if we hadn't done it. You don't know what you don't know, right? You don't know how bad things can be until you've been there. Mm-hmm. And you don't know how great they can be until you've literally gutted yourself from the inside, changed it all, and rebuilt it. I agree. And to be super honest or to be very open about it, like we, you and I are newbies in the program. Mm-hmm. Like we've only got a couple years sober. We have quite literally just scratched the surface of how amazing this life can be. And if this, what we are living in, in this, in this present moment is just scratching the surface, even though you are a magnificent pain in my ass, I cannot wait for what comes next. Again, my favorite part about being sober is I know that we'll never reach the pinnacle, right? It's mm-hmm. always a climb, yeah. but it's every day better. And I mean, some days suck, right? Cause like life sucks sometimes. Yeah. But like our ability to deal with it, cope with it and build back stronger from it is it was not a possibility just a short couple years ago. No, I absolutely agree with you. All right, honey. You got anything else? No, I, I think that's enough bank robbing junkie stories for one evening. I know. Do you think the people are happy to know? I think they don't give a shit. <laughs> but it's important. It's always important for me to tell my story. Uh, I think it keeps it fresh. That's why people tell their stories in AA. Uh, I think it's important to discuss it so that other people tell their stories or question themselves. Yeah, definitely. And I think the hope portion is no matter what road you've traveled, there's nothing that's unredeemable. No. Again, two people that are living proof of that. Yep. All right. Should we end it tonight? We shall. Say goodnight, darling. Good night. I'm Megan and I'm an alcoholic. I'm Chris. I am no longer a bank robbing junkie, but still an alcoholic. Please cut off your pets' privates. And if you are struggling in any way, please, please, please put your hand up, reach out, ask for help. So I Married an Alcoholic is sponsored by RealtorAndABaby.com. Are you looking to buy, sell, or lease real estate? Even if you're not in greater Philadelphia, reach out with your contact information so you can be connected with the most qualified realtor in your area. RealtorAndABaby at gmail.com.